when our founding constitutional fathers decided to make Kuwait a democracy, they decided to make it a male-only democracy. It seems a little bit backwards, but they're not here now. We are. So we have to do our best to change that and challenge that. This is episode 13 of the TCF World Podcast. I'm Lily Hindi in New York. On this episode of TCF World, we invite Kuwaiti women's rights activist Alanud Al-Sharikh to tell us about her campaign to introduce better laws on violence against women and empower women to run for political office in the Arab Gulf region. Alanud is a researcher, academic, and activist who has held posts as an analyst at the International Institute of Strategic Studies and at the Kuwait National Security Bureau. She has served as an advisor to a number of local and international governmental bodies and NGOs, including UNIFEM, Freedom House, and the UNDP. Alanud holds a PhD in Middle Eastern Studies, Comparative Literature, and Feminism from SOAS in London, and she has published numerous articles, edited volumes, and a book comparing English and Arabic women writers. We're so pleased that we were able to host Alanud this morning in honor of International Women's Day for a breakfast discussion with a public audience at TCF headquarters in New York, and that she stuck around to record a bit more for our podcast. Alanud is the founder of Abolish 153, an organization dedicated to getting rid of the article in Kuwait's penal code that treats quote-unquote honor killing as a misdemeanor, punishable with a maximum three-year prison sentence or a $50 fine. Here's a brief snippet from this morning's event about Alanud's experience promoting this campaign in Kuwait. I think it would be naive of us to think that all women in Kuwait support this article, believe it or not. We've had conversations with women lawyers. The mind boggles that somebody would drink that much patriarchal Kool-Aid. But <laughs> women lawyers would argue with us that, well, this is a good thing. I mean, how is this a good thing, right? The, I mean, it, it could be a completely malicious accusation, right? There's no witnesses. And it's purely based on somebody's enragement. Why is this a good thing? And then they they counter with this is, uh, you know, our tradition. And then you'd explain that, no, actually, it comes from French law. It's not your tradition. Then they'd say something like, well, sometimes even foreigners have a better understanding of Islam than Muslims do. And you're like, well, it's not Islamic. Just, no. You know? So not all women support abolishing Article 153. And we've made our peace with that. We just need to <clears throat> raise awareness and uh, speak louder and hopefully turn them around. And if not them, their daughters. Alanud, can you tell us what an honor, quote-unquote honor killing is and what this legislation does? Sure, Lily. Thank you for having me today. It was a real pleasure to uh, discuss the campaign and to discuss other issues pertaining to what we're trying to do uh, in Kuwait and in the region. Um, the Abolish 153 campaign is a regional campaign, so even though we are focusing on the honor killing legislation in Kuwait, we're trying to be a voice of women who suffer from other forms of disciplinary violence, not just the so-called honor killings. And I think, uh, as you said, sometimes it's a controversial label because a lot of women reject it. Um, it's a killing. There's no justification. And when you add honor to it, it seems like uh, it's uh, a killing that was justified because of a woman's transgression. But I have also seen that when we frame it this way, sometimes it leads to a, a visceral 
uh, anger among women that they would be reduced to something tied into male honor uh, and that a man would have the right to defend his honor even if that means taking her life. So I think there are arguments to be made on both sides of uh, people who are with the term and people who are against it. Can you describe the crime in more detail? Well, the law itself says that if a man surprises his wife, his sister, his mother, or his daughter in a sexual act and kills her or the perpetrator that she's doing this act with, or both, uh, it's considered a misdemeanor. The maximum punishment is a three-year prison sentence or 3,000 rupees. And it's in rupees because it's, it's an archaic law. It predates our independence. You said that you've been accused of being Western and of betraying national identity by trying to get rid of this law, that it goes against Kuwaiti tradition as well as Islamic tradition. What do you say in response to those criticisms? Well, I say that I'm a Kuwaiti patriot, and uh, what I'm doing, I think, is uh, a testament to the relative uh, freedom of expression that we have in Kuwait and to how evolved Kuwaiti women are, that they're willing to be shameless in their uh, pursuit of justice, social justice specifically. But I don't think we can talk about empowering women without talking about removing everything that disempowers them. And uh, this law is an example of the extremes that some people would uh, expect men to discipline women. So, the law punishes for a sexual act, whereas in the same penal code, the punishment for adultery is only five years in prison or 5,000 uh, rupees. So how can you give men the right to kill at will? Uh, I mean, it can be used for malicious reasons. Uh, and I don't care if this, this article um, is never used in the courts. We know that it, it is getting used, but I don't care if it's never getting used. The fact that it exists is an affront to me and to all women. Uh, it's not Sharia compliant, it's not constitutional, and it uh, goes against all human rights uh, agreements. And it goes against your basic right to defend yourself against an accuser. How can a man be judge and jury and executor altogether? Why, why are we giving him this power? I think it's an extreme form of what I've written about a great deal, disciplinary violence. So the idea that a, a male guardian is allowed to discipline women by hitting them or by um, removing their independence, taking away their paychecks or any other form of, of verbal, psychological, physical violence. And this is the ultimate manifestation that he has the right to kill her if she transgresses on his honor. So I don't want my daughter to grow up in a country where her life is worth so little, and I think Kuwait is better than that. And most Kuwaitis aren't aware that we have this article in our penal code, and the majority of them, according to a survey that we conducted, would stand behind abolishing it. And I think it's a testament to our young parliamentarians that four of them signed, four of the young men signed the um, uh, bill to abolish it alongside the, the lone woman that we have in office. So what is the process now that you expect for this bill? Well, it's not enough that we have a bill in office. It took us long enough, and 
God knows we had to knock on the doors of many, many, many policymakers first to explain the existence of the law and then to explain that it actually comes from Napoleonic code. It's got nothing to do with our traditions or our religion. It's a colonial remnant. Uh, and then convince them that actually Kuwait and its people don't want this legislation to exist. But this is part of a, a larger conversation on domestic violence. We are finding ourselves in a legal vacuum in Kuwait. We don't have a domestic violence law. We don't have working shelters. We don't have hotlines. And part of this is the idea that what whatever a man does to discipline his uh, female kin, even if it's violent, is fine. And this is what we need to challenge. It's not fine. It's our job to protect those who are weak and can't protect themselves. And if the society tells you it's okay, for your father to discipline you or your brother or your husband or even your son, we're there to say, no, it's not okay. It's the state's job to make sure that you are not harmed. We'll take a quick break for an advertisement about the TCF Foreign Policy Team's new book, and then we'll be back to talk about Alanud's work empowering women to run for political office in Kuwait. Order from Ashes. New Foundations for Security in the Middle East is a multi-year TCF project supported by the Carnegie Corporation of New York. TCF experts are studying new ways to manage conflict and promote stability. You can order the book and read the reports on our website. Go to tcf.org and look for the Arab Regional Security page. Alanud is also a consulting partner at Ibtikar Strategic Consultancy, where she is training a group of 15 women political leaders to run for office in Kuwait. At this morning's discussion, one of our guests asked Alanud what motivates these women to run for office. What's motivating them? Uh, frustration, mostly, um, and ambition, right? I think you have to be a particular kind of person to want to run for political office. It's not easy. And we asked ourselves all these questions. So we uh, posted in the newspapers and we, we looked at the demographics closely, like readership, who's interested in this. And we went on radio shows, both English and Arabic. Uh, I'm not a, a, a big TV show person, but I went on the TV show circuits and spoke about this. And I spoke that um, we weren't putting an age limit. We, we didn't want to have a cutoff. And uh, we wanted people who had some kind of political experience, but that also wasn't a be-all or end-all. And um, they had to fill in an application. And we got 70 applicants in two weeks because we only opened it for two weeks. And we only had 15 seats. So then it became a rigorous process of going through the applications and then interviewing them and then trying to see, you know, not only who... Um, was serious about running for office, but who, even if they, odds are they won't win a race, could be a very impactful political leader in other ways. So um, it's been really interesting. We've we've gotten women from uh, four different decades uh, in this program, and we're very very excited to start the training and then see if this is going to have a ripple effect. Alanud, can you tell us about your work training these women to run for office and also give us a bit of background on women's political participation in Kuwait? 
Well, I've been a, a senior fellow at think tanks, and I've been an, a, a senior advisor for the government uh, on a lot of what they call the soft power issues. So looking at the relationship with youth and gender, migrant labor, and how uh, domestic security can sometimes translate into regional security issues and uh, the impact of, of uh, not paying enough attention to these things. So if, if you think of it even in, in terms of countering terrorism, for example, well, you have to catch the young men and women who are doing these acts. You have to empower their mothers so that you change the dialogue that leads to these types of actions. So um, I, I think we get confused sometimes when we call things soft power by thinking that soft power is not very powerful, but it is. It's the, the way to measure real social change in a country. And uh, when I established this consultancy, we were focusing a lot on cultural sensitivity, but then I got a chance to um, work with a consortium of uh, con consultants in the US and uh, NGOs in Kuwait and the US on this wonderful program to empower women politically. Uh, our record for women in politics has been abysmal. Um, we've had our political rights for the past 13 years, which is uh, embarrassing enough <laughs> as it is that uh, I don't know why when our founding uh, you know, founding constitutional fathers decided to make Kuwait a democracy, they decided to make it a male-only democracy. It seems a little bit backwards for something that took place in the 60s. But they're not here now. We are. So we have to do our best to change that and challenge that. But I think part of not being involved in politics lingers on today. So you have women unable to access the gateway positions. They're unable to get close to the circles of power so that they are nominated organically. Uh, and a lot of those circles are close to them. So within tribal primaries, they don't nominate women. Within uh, Islamist parties, they don't nominate women. So that leaves us with a very small, independent, moderate, or liberal contingency who have their own men as well. So it's not like they're just going to focus on women. So we have to try and expand that space for women. There's a lot of resistance in Kuwait to the idea of quotas, although they've been proven to work because it's not a level playing field and women don't get ahead because of merit. I mean, that's a fallacy even in the most progressive countries. Cognitive bias is true and it's deeply entrenched. So what we're trying to do with the EQUIP program is to give an opportunity to those women who are ambitious but who haven't had the, the access to the funding or the access to the experience that gives you the natural training to be a public speaker, to be a media personality, to work on coalitions, to craft a message, to use social media platforms to attract attention, and to come up with a political strategy. And we're trying to include not just the National Assembly, but also the municipalities, the co-ops, uh, the NGOs, the student unions, everywhere that is electoral based, we want to encourage women to get into politics because we've been waiting for a top-down change, but we can see with the stalling of women judges in Kuwait, it's been announced for the past five years, it still hasn't materialized, that we can't just wait for governments to come through. We need to push in our own space as well. So you have no women judges in Kuwait right now? Nope. 
but I'm uh, hopeful that the situation will change soon because they graduated 22 female district attorneys uh, a few years ago with the sole intention of training them to become judges. We're just waiting for that training phase to be over. Okay, and how about uh, members of parliament? Well, right now we only have one female parliamentarian. In 2009, we had four, and um, the maximum number after that was three, and now it's just one. And do you see many women running and not getting elected, or is it just that? No. The, the most, the highest number of women who ran for office was actually in the first election they were allowed to run in 2006. Okay. There has been a lot of media backlash, and uh, a lot of that sort of euphoria that we can finally run has been replaced with fear and cynicism. So we're, we're trying to change that dialogue a little bit. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Alanud, and good luck. We'll be following your work on these important issues. Well, thank you very much for hosting me. I really appreciate it, and uh, I really enjoyed uh, both the discussion and the many, many questions that came with it. TCF World has been brought to you by the Century Foundation a progressive public policy think tank that seeks to foster opportunity, reduce inequality, and promote security at home and abroad. For more information about the work that TCF does, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook.